0: Take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and following. Hebrews chapter 12, thank you to the worship team for that awesome time of worship and the prayer and ministry as as well. We are in the study of the book of Hebrews, in which the author of Hebrews says, In these last days, and I keep wanting to remind you, though it's been 2,000 years, ever since Jesus Christ's first advent on this earth, we have been living in the last days. And in these last days, how does God speak to us? He speaks to us through his son, Jesus, the one and only. There is no other way God speaks. I mean, there are other ways we can see the hand of God and hear the voice of God. But ultimately, the voice of God, the fullest, most complete revelation of God to mankind is Jesus. And so we listened to Jesus and week after week of this study, which has gone on for about 17 weeks, we got one more week of this study. Week after week, the author of Hebrews has in this book, and and many contend that this book is not really like a letter, it's more like a sermon. Uh, The way it's directed, it, it reads more like a sermon, it seems more like a sermon, and throughout these weeks, The author of Hebrews has been speaking to a group of people who evidently were Jewish and are going through really, really hard times. They're undergoing persecution, suffering. They don't know what is going on. They don't know which way is up. Some of them are so confused that they're thinking about returning to the earlier days of Judaism, Um, and it could be anything. People who become followers of Jesus Christ, there's this, like many times, this wave of joy, this wave of Things are going great, and then things happen, and they start thinking, wow, I think I was happier before. I think things were easier before. This is such a battle. Things are so hard. Maybe I should just go back to living like I did before. And the author of Hebrews is saying to them, listen, there's nothing to go back to. There is nothing greater than Jesus. And over these passages, he's He's been bringing it all together to show how Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater greater than everything. Therefore, let us move forward. Let us, in faith, see what God is going to do in the days ahead. Let Let us keep pressing on. There's nothing to go back to. And in many ways... This section of the book is the climax of the sermon. This is really, I believe, what he's been leading toward. And so obviously, I've been preaching on this 17 weeks. I think this is pretty important. If you've been building on it, and you're now in weeks, we're in week 17 of probably what was one sermon, uh, I've taken 17 of them, and could have done 100 because this passage is so rich. But he's bringing, it's like he's got all these threads going on. And today, he's going to pull them tight to say to them, here's what I really want to say about all that's going on. Because we're all in shaken period. Things get shaken, don't they? Don't you many times in your life feel like things are just being shaken in me? Why is that? Why do I feel this shaking going on? Well, according to the author of Hebrews this morning, God is in the business of shaking. He shakes so that that which is temporal gets done away with, so that that which is permanent and kingdom oriented remains. Hallelujah. I'm in a shaking. The thing about shaking is no one likes to be shaken, it is not pleasant to be shaken. On October 17th, 1989, I actually remember where I was this date. I was sitting in my one-bedroom apartment. Kathy and I had uh, been married a little over a year, and uh, we were in this third-floor apartment in Arlington, Texas. I was sitting down to, uh, to watch the World Series game between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland Athletics. The World Series game was about to begin, I was excited. I always like to watch baseball. So I had uh, finished school. I was sitting down. Pre-game is on. All of a sudden, my, my, my television goes blank. And I'm like, what the heck? Where's the game? So I go and shake my TV. Nothing. Shake my TV. And then there's this, blo- I'll just wait until it comes back on because I'm going to watch this stinking game. Unbeknownst to me, and to millions of others uh, around the United States, they just witnessed the first live earthquake uh, broadcast on television. And what happened in San Francisco from Candlestick Park was really devastating, as we came to know in the, in the, in the days ahead. Um, it was a 7.1 magnitude earthquake. 57 people died in this quake. And for once, a sporting event actually stopped because of an earthquake. The Bible, throughout the Bible, uses earthquakes as kind of the symbol of uncertainty. Because there is something in us that doesn't really like it when the ground underneath us shakes. Everything seems so permanent around us, doesn't it? But when the earth starts to shake, there's something that makes you realize, wow, this is not all it's cracked up to be, so to speak. Today, we want to look at what is it about the shaking that God wants us to learn because it, again, it's bringing it all together for us. And I think it's really important because it leads us to a place of knowing who we are in him which I think is critical, we got to know, because things are going to, as Andre was saying, many times we just don't know, and who we are, and what's going on, so let's look at this passage, I want to walk through it, then bring some points out, which um, I think are really important, here's how it starts, verses 14 of chapter 12, verse 14 of chapter 12, do you remember what verses uh, 1 through 13 were about last week? Anyone? Anybody remember last week's sermon? Someone make me feel good. Anybody? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? About what? I couldn't hear you, Cindy. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the cloud of witnesses. Why? Because what are we going to undergo? A shaking. We're undergoing discipline. What is the purpose of discipline? Discipline is to help keep us on the path and to build up our spiritual muscles. In other words, if I go into training as an athlete, not that I am, but if I go into training as an athlete, I'm doing it because I want to get stronger. So God is using discipline to keep us on track, to make sure we don't go off the path, and to build up our spiritual muscles. With that in mind, he then says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Wouldn't you love that tag to your name, you godless Esau person? Who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So God is in the process of using discipline, using hardships, using troubles in our life to both keep us on track and to build up our spiritual muscles. But there are a couple of things that will short-circuit this process in our lives if we're not careful. Are you with me? The first way to short-circuit Short short circuit, the process, is by allowing bitterness or unforgiveness to take root in your hearts. This is critical, people. If you have unforgiveness or bitterness that's taken root in your heart towards someone, to something, then it's as if you've got a cast on and no matter how much you try to exercise your arm, it's just going to start to wither. It's going to, because of apathy, it's going to cause you not to be strong in the Lord. Bitterness is a horrific disease of the soul because you defile everything you touch when you're bitter. And most people don't go straight to bitterness, they get bitter because of unforgiveness in their lives. And here's how I believe the picture is painted for us we have problems. We have difficulties, and everybody's got them. Everybody. I mean, just look at the person around you. Do they have problems? Yes, they have problems. Many of us are really, really, really gifted at hiding our problems, at not letting other people know we have problems or difficulties, not letting people know what the status of our children, our marriage or our job or our finances are. We're a hidden kind of people. But everybody's got problems. And if you're not careful, and I'm going down the negative track here, not the positive. The good thing about problems is they build us up, right? They, they're, they're the way, they're what God uses as the spiritual dumbbells in our life to build up our spiritual muscles and to keep us on track. But if we're not careful, problems get us frustrated. It, it's like something's blocking. I've got a problem. And now I'm frustrated because I can't get through the problem and I'm, I feel blocked. So therefore, I, I blame somebody. Somebody's got to be to blame for my frustration, right? I mean, I've told the story many times, but I, I remember when my boys were really little. Um, and uh, one, one day, Adam was, he was small and, he was just on fire, furious angry. And I'm like, Adam, what's the problem? And he's like, I'll tell you the problem. <laughs> Jewid is the problem. <laughs> Had a little trouble with his ours early on. Jawid is the problem. I said, Well, what am I gonna do? Get rid of Jawid. I mean he was ready. <laughs> he was ready for his brother to go. He's my problem. He's my block. He's my frustration. If I could just get rid of this older brother, life would be good. Well, Adam has certainly learned, as life has gone along, there are other problems other than just Jared. I mean, there are other things. Because what happens is we have a problem, and if we don't see it in its true light, we get incredibly frustrated. And we blame. Somebody's got to be to blame. My wife, my husband, my children. Somebody's got to be blamed for it. And what happens? Bitterness, unforgiveness rises up within us. And we, this bitter thing, it will kill you, kill you. I know you've heard it said before. I've said it and I borrowed it from somewhere. I can't remember. But, you know, unforgiveness is like uh, drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's like that. It'll kill you. And, but you think you've got this thing. I just can't let it go. And he's saying, look, bitterness or unforgiveness, if you go down this track, you will never, you will short circuit the purpose and plans of God in your life. You will not get strong. You will not develop. You will, you'll be forever an infant. The other thing he points out that could happen if it's not bitterness, it's escape. Okay, I got to get out of this. I got to i got to do this. And who does he use as an example? Godless Esau. What did Esau do? He came in from the field. He's starving to death. He's got a problem. So what does he do? He trades his birthright for food. And here's how I see escape. Escape is trading down. It's trading down. God has given you the opportunity when you face problems, difficulties, challenges in your life to trade up in his kingdom, to be strengthened and allow your muscles. But listen, if you become, if you you see, I want to be gentle here. Your wife is not your problem. Now, she may be a challenge, (laughs) but she is not your problem. The problem is what's in you and your frustration and your blame of her that leads you then to escape. How do we escape? Men blame their wives for porn. They blame their wives for affairs. They blame their wives for alcohol. They blame their wives for... They're blaming someone because they've got a problem. They're frustrated. And they blame someone, and now they're escaping. And what they don't see is that this trap of escape is death, like bitterness. It'll short-circuit the plan and purpose of God in your lives. Man, I, I don't want to just pick on men. Women, you do the same thing. You, you, you blame your husband, you know, if you were just a better leader. If you would just do more stuff around the house. If you would just be perfect, then my life would be good. And so you blame your husband. You blame your children. You blame your job. You blame your circumstances. You get frustrated, and you escape. How do women escape? They escape in their heads. They escape in other relationships. They escape in reading. They escape in alcohol. More and more women are escaping in porn. I mean, it's all on the rise. I mean, it's it's crossing genders. But what I'm saying is, look, we've all got problems. That's not the issue. And he's going to say in just a minute, I mean, he's already said it, you've got problems, right? They're going to be here. They're not going anywhere. But how you handle your problems will make all the difference between life and death. don't see problems as the problem. See how you come through those problems as the issue. Am I going to be strengthened or am I going to be... Okay, that's not the whole sermon, but it's good. (laughs) I mean, really. I mean, I I see this in my own life over and over again. I mean, I, I have to tell you, I live in a certain level of frustration, and when I get there... I realize something's wrong in me. Because frustration is like somebody is blocking me. Something is blocking me. Right? And so I got to get through it or I'm going to lead to two different paths that are going to be really problematic for all of us. Especially me. Life is hard and discipline or training is challenging. Don't short-circuit God's plan and purpose for your life. You have come to a mountain, he goes on and says. That can be touched and that is burning with fire. To darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. That was the, it's a quote from the Old Testament. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. This is a reference to them coming to Mount Sinai. They come to Mount Sinai, the children of Israel, I'm I'm jumping ahead, are all y'all with me? They come out of Egypt, some of you understand the reference really quick. They come out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea with Moses in the wilderness, come to Mount Sinai. God is there. And what do they do? God starts to speak to them. And they say, whoa, whoa, this is too scary for me. Moses, you go talk to him. You don't, God, don't say anything more. You just talk to Moses. Now, why is this? I mean, we, we live in this age when we're like, I want the presence of God. I want the presence of God. I want the presence of God. They got the presence of God and they go, I don't want the presence of God. I don't really want to hear from God. Moses, you handle it. Look, every time, every time you see people come into the presence of God, what happens? They are terrified. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. It's Isaiah, and he's a prophet. Most people, when they just meet an angel, they're scared to death. What, why is that? Let me see if I can illustrate it. Well, I, I went to high school in North Miami, Florida. I started to put a picture of me in high school, but it's, it's so horrific. I just uh, My self-image couldn't handle it this morning. So um, <clears throat> I went to high school in North Miami. Uh, there were 750 in my graduating class. So I'm sitting there. I'm watching people go across the stage. I've never met before. I'm like, who is that dude? Who is that girl? I've never seen them. I've been in this high school three years. Never seen them. My high school had over 2,100 in it. I mean, it was a big high school. Uh, but in that context of what I thought was a big pond, uh, I was a big deal, at least musically. I mean, I, 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 was in the, I was president of our choir. I know this is all geeky sounding to you, but I was president of the choir. I was in the band. I sang. I was in the marching band. I mean, I, I was like the lead in every musical that we did in high school. I mean, I, I truthfully, I thought I was pretty good at least in this context. And it wasn't like a tiny context. It wasn't like I had 10 in my graduating class. So um, anyway, then... Girls, this is really good. <laughs> um, so then I get to my high school story and I'm out of here. So anyway, anyway, uh, I'm glad y'all didn't leave. Just went uh, <laughs> to see my mom. Okay. Where was I? So then, then, then I go to college. Anybody else want to get up and go somewhere? (laughs) So then I I go to college and I realized as soon as I got there, oh my gosh, everybody here was the best in their high school. I mean, everybody was top dog in their high school. And suddenly, I'm telling you, my whole self, my world collapsed for a while while I figured out who I was. This contrast and comparison, we think we're pretty good compared to the people around us. But then you get around some other people who are all like you, and you realize, wow, I am not that big a deal. I mean, I was so scared that um, uh, they were having this audition for the University Chorale, the, the choir. I, I was so nervous, I wouldn't even go try out. I mean, not even try out for the choir. But some friends of mine said, we're going to go try out. And I said, okay, well, they said, come on, just go with us, just... I'm not really comfortable with this. So I said, but I'll go with you. I'll just hang out in the hallway while you guys try out. And they said, great. So Miller and Barry went with me, and we we walk in the hall, and I'm just standing up against the wall. I'm not going to try out. I've already determined in my mind I'm not going to try out. The dean of the music school comes out, and he goes, okay, we're ready to start auditions. Who wants to go first? You. And he points right at me. (laughs) You. Come on in. I mean, I would have never tried out. If he hadn't pointed right at... I mean, the dean of the music school, what am I going to say? No, I don't want to. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I didn't have time to get as scared as I should have been. Went in, sang, did all my stuff. I made it. But <laughs> the point being... <laughs> the point being, you, when you get in comparison mode... Now, multiply that by a billion times, billion times. When you get in the presence of God, you realize oh, I am undone. I am, look, I am not, I am unclean. That's what happened at Mount Sinai with them. But the author doesn't, he doesn't lead us, leave them there. He takes them to another mount. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. Author's saying there's a better way. We don't come to Mount Sinai in fear. Now, because of Jesus, we get to come to Mount Zion. The new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, because of Jesus. Through Jesus, he's going to go on and say here, let's just read it. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate that the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. He's making a reference, by the way, to a future time when all creation will be done away with. And he's saying, I'm going to remove it, there's a kingdom that's coming, but he's also saying there is a there is a, there's a future to this, but there's an already to it because of who we are in him. Because he goes on and says, therefore, since we are receiving, he means now, present tense and future tense, are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. We see God as a consuming fire, and we're like, oh, this is horrible, horrible. God is a consuming fire. Listen, he's using this to say God is a consuming fire. This is good news for us, whether we know it or not, if, if we are in Jesus Christ, and we recognize the process of what God is doing. Here's the picture. I'm going to give you the points. We're going to walk through them, because... Um, they're critical for who we are, and I I think they're the climax of what he's trying to say to us. The world, everything that is, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Why? So that that which can't be shaken is going to remain. The temporal is being shaken, and shaken things make us uncomfortable. But God is doing it so that in our lives, That which can't be shaken is going to remain. We people are a part of an unshakable kingdom. We have the unchanging person of Jesus Christ who leads us into the unshakable kingdom. What does that mean for us? What does that mean? What do we receive when we become a part of this unshakable kingdom? Well, let me move through these. The unshakable kingdom gives us an unshakable future and all of these points are taken from verse 22 of Hebrews 12 but you have come to mount zion to the heavenly jerusalem the city of the living god you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven where where have we come we have come to the city of the living god the city of the living god He's saying, you have an unshakable future. Your names are written in heaven. If you read the Bible, there are really two cities, so to speak, that the Bible talks about. There's the city of man, and there's the city of God. In 410 AD, uh, the Visgoths sacked Rome. In other words, Rome was overrun by pagans. And everybody looked around and said, why has this happened? Some people tried to pr- blame Christians, saying this is done because we're the Christians. We've become a Christian society because you remember in 333, isn't that right, 333 A.D., Joshua, help me, Constantine uh, declared that um, it was going to be the, Christianity was going to be the religion of Rome. So by 410, when it's overrun by the pagans, they're looking for people to blame. And Augustine steps up and says, this is not what you think it is. This is a shaking. And he writes uh, a book called The City of God and says, there's the city of man, which is always temporal. There's the city of man that is for now. And when... When you come to Christ, you get to be a part of a different city. You get to be a part of the kingdom of God, the city of God. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, you see in the book of Revelation, the city with all its measurements, all its stuff outlined, that there is a city of God. The good news about being God, part of God's unshakable kingdom is you have an unshakable future. In other words... It is determined. You, you, you are part. You're a part now, by the way. It's, it's past and present tense. You have come to this city. What, what does this city look like that you have come to? Augustine, and I agree with, says he's talking about the church. We are the people of God the city of God. We're like like an outpost planted on a future event. That's who we are as the, the people of God. We're not perfect, but we're like that pioneering group that's planted in what is going to take place. You have it to some degree, but you only have a taste of it. But once you get that taste, you don't want anything else. Okay, we're part of an unshakable future. Second point is this. The unshakable kingdom gives us an unshakable joy. Joy. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Here's what I want you You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. So you you don't just come to a place, you come to a position. You come to a position of joy. This passage tells us that there are thousands upon thousands of angels worshiping, I mean, they're joyful. By the way, the way this, this term joyful assembly is really kind of an understatement for an unbelievable party. It's a phrase for a celebration, a festival, even a wild party. Now contrast this with Mount Sinai when the people came and they were so afraid, they just were in fear and trembling versus this unbelievable joy that we have received. Christmas is a time of joy, isn't it? Families coming together, for most of you that's joyful. I found this picture this week. You've probably seen this. This is how some of us feel at Christmas. We know we're supposed to have joy, but we really don't. (laughs) You know, we're holding up. I'm so happy. Yeah. You know, we know we're supposed to be joyful in our hearts, but there's nothing reflective of joy on us. It's a tough time Christmas can be for families. It should be a time of joy, but there's so much going on that the idea of joy seems to be robbed of us. Why? Because we've got the wrong picture of joy. The Bible tells us that even the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. There is joy reflected all around us. It's saying that all of reality is an ocean of joy, and we're just stuck in a tiny little speck of darkness. And it teaches that this joy has come to us now. The angels, when they came to the shepherds, what did they say? Great tidings, good tidings, great joy. will be to all people. Somewhere along the line, it seems as if the church has lost the great joy of being a part of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I believe it's possible to have that joy now, not just as an abstract concept for the future, but a reality in our lives today. Because we are a part of God's unshakable kingdom. And we have unshakable joy. I'm going to get to the why we have trouble with this, but J.I. Packer says this about Joy, he says, and God, he's, he's saying that shaking leads to greater joy is really the, the context of the quote. Still, he seeks the fellowship of his people, God does, and sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from the other things and attach it to himself. In other words, God shakes things that you think will bring you joy so that... You'll really turn to what's joy in and of itself. It, it, here's the point. Many times, we as people, we, we look to stuff to bring our, us happiness, right? We look to other people. We look to uh, money. We look to cars. We look to houses. We look to stuff to bring us joy. And here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. God is going to shake that stuff because none of that is permanent he's going to so shake it that you're going to realize i'm going to detach myself from that and i'm going to attach myself to god because in his presence there's what fullness of joy that's where joy is really found that's where the fullness of joy will be realized is in his presence third point the unshakable kingdom gives us an unshakable identity but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. The question that many of us are trying to ask is our answer. We've, we're asking the question of who am I? Who, who, who am I really? The question, the question of identity is usually answered by some sort of adverbial phrase that has to do with our doing something. Doing. I am I'm a pastor. I'm a homeschool mom. I am a wife. I am a father. I'm a businessman. I'm a billionaire. I'm a this. I'm a that. And so our identity is in, our somebodyness is attached to something that we do right and God God will shake that because he wants us to know that our identity is not in things we do or stuff we have our identity is that we are the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven our identity is in him just to give you a biblical example, the apostles go out in Luke 10. Uh, Jesus sends the disciples out, says, hey, go preach the good news. He breathes on them. They get power. They go out. They come back. They are so excited. Jesus, you're not going to believe this. We healed people. We cast out demons. We are somebody. It's like Steve Martin in The Jerk when he gets the phone book. Some of you never saw this movie, but... And don't Uh, but he opens the phone book he finds his name and he yells out i am somebody that's how we that's about how relative we are in the world i am somebody just because my name's in the phone book what does jesus say to them he says hey don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you rejoice because what your names are written in heaven don't, don't get all worked up about this stuff. Now, if we saw people healed and demons cast out, I mean, we would be like, yeah, let's party. But Jesus says, "Jesus says, hey, that's just, that's just like lower level stuff. Matter of fact, he could actually take that stuff away from us if we find our identity in it. Right, listen to me, church. I really believe this. If we find our identity in even walking in supernatural things, I think Jesus would shake it because he says, that is not you. Your identity is who you are in me." As a matter of fact, He says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that which can't be shaken will remain. We are the church of the firstborn. I think this should be incredibly good news for us. And here's why I say this. We all struggle. We're all in this struggle of of what do I do? And for many of us, the struggle of what do I do is not based on what does God want me to do in order to fulfill his kingdom purposes. The question of what do I do is based on I need to be somebody. Somebody. I need to feel like I'm important. I need to, I need my somebodiness built up. And so we try to live a good life. We try really hard to do stuff. Because then in the end, we feel like if I can do all of this stuff, then I can can be somebody, I can be important. The author of Hebrews in this climax of the sermon is saying, listen, persecution, troubles, problems, they're God's shaking so that you'll know who you are, what you're a part of, and where you're headed. You are who I say you are. You're, You're the church of the firstborn. Your names are written in heaven. Your identity is affirmed. You, as a result, you have an incredible future. It is guaranteed for you. I'm going off just a little bit here because today there's several hundred of us sitting here and I would say for almost everybody here, you are, if you're not careful, you're the accumulation of words people have spoken over you. Some of you have had terrible things said to you about who you are. And those words have just accumulated in your life. And so you you think you are this based on what somebody has spoken over you. You're no good. You're never going to be any good. You've been cursed. You've been beaten down with words. For you, being shaken by God is great news because that which can't be shaken will remain. And those words, those words of death, They're not going to remain. That's not who you are. And you can be set free. So, you know what? Embrace the problems and difficulties and challenges of your life in order to understand who you are, what you're to be doing, and where you're headed, what you're a part of. Now, for some of us, we've had great words spoken over. You're special. You're the best. You're wonderful. You're a perfect child. And you know what? For some of us, we need to be shaken to understand that that is not who we are either. Because in truth, you're not that special. I mean, really, let's say you're one in a billion. There's at least seven others just like you out there then, right? do the math. It'll come to you later. <laughs> I'm not saying that to beat you down. I'm just saying, look, for some of us we've received words that are not really true about who we are, both negative and positive. Because if we're going to realize someday that's not really who I am. Who I am is who I am in Jesus. I am a part of the unshakable kingdom of God because of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. At that time, and he's talking about the end time, but I think he's talking about all this end time, all of this period of time. His voice shook the earth, but now he's promised once more, I'm going to shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are we, now and forever receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and all for our God is a consuming fire. <clears throat> In closing, here's what I want to say. Jesus came to this earth as God. He was put to death on a cross. He was shaken and received the penalty for what we should have received so that we can be a part of the unshakable kingdom. When Jesus died on the cross, what was God's sign? This was his move. An earthquake. An earthquake occurred. The temple, the veil in the temple, as a result, was torn into, was rent into, so that we have full access to the presence of God because we no longer have to come to Mount Sinai in fear and trembling. Because of the law, we can come to Mount Zion, we can come to the presence of God because of the fullness of Jesus Christ in our lives. As a result, let's let's seize this identity of who we are in Him. We're going to talk about this next week. We are the community of grace. Hello? We're a community of grace. That's who we are. We're a part of that. Don't let's not see it lightly. And as a result, we should be a people of unspeakable, continual joy. Not just, I'm happy, 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 but I am fully content in the Lord because I have a future that's assured in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that we're a part of this incredible, unshakable kingdom. Lord, I want to pray for us as a people right now. I want to pray that we would know who we are in you. That we would know that the future is not just the future, it's the present. We're a part of the future. Even now, we have received a kingdom. That is both now and coming. Lord, we thank you that we are who, who you say we are. Our identity is in you. We pray that we would be spill, uh, filled with unspeakable joy. That we would be a people that are, are not dictated to by our circumstances, our situations, but we are joyful in you. And the Lord, I know there are many going through today. Illness. They're going through relationship issues, financial issues, family, jobs. Lord, we thank you for the shaking. Because in the shaking, we'll realize what's temporal. And instead, we'll seize firmly to you. Thank you, Lord. May you find us obedient to your word, to your ways, to your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is one of those passages that is so, so, so rich. I I encourage you to go read it and just dive in. Get all wet in it, so to speak. Let it be immersed in it uh, because it it is rich of what you're a part of what we are a part of and who we are in him. We're going to take up an offering. Uh, There's a white card in your um, bulletin. Sorry, I've used up all my words for the morning. There's a white card in your bulletin. If you have prayer requests, while you get your offering ready and your white card ready, Scott's going to come. And um, is Hannah in here, Scott? Yeah, there she is. Sorry, I, I knew she had nursery duty this morning. Before we take up the offering, Scott wants to recognize um, not just his sister, but someone special. All right. Uh, fullness, we like to recognize our December graduates, and uh, I'm especially proud of this graduate. Um, so if you'd forgive me for just a second, um, play the role of proud big brother. Um Hannah just graduated from uh, UAB with a Bachelor of Science in Secondary Education at the second major in English. Um, she was a member of the Presidential Honors Society, the Dean's List, English Honors Society, a GPA of 3.97. So obviously she got the uh, brains of the family and not me. Um, so, um, yeah. And uh, Hannah, could you share what you're doing next? You've graduated. So um, I'm currently working on getting my substitute teacher license so I can sub this spring while applying for some full-time teaching jobs, and um, I'm also going to be tutoring at UAB and doing some freelance editing for a local publishing company. Um, I'm also planning a mission trip to Africa for this summer, so I'll be going through a ministry called Pioneers, and they focus on going to unreached people groups, so I'll be doing that as well. All right, well, let's uh, pray for Hannah.